whatever time is it where you're listening, this is Diane at the Ramble Room with Ken and Hello. Tom Kelly. Hello. And Garrett Lindemann again. He just showed up here. I don't really know what he's doing. Hi, Hi Diane. <laughs> There's a spare mic open. I just came in. I just drove by and went, oh, I'm going to stop. Oh, in. man. Ken got new headphones and, and uh, we should have yeah. not let him all, laid them all out at once. He wanted to break them in. Yeah. <laughs> got a big enough head to do it so it could get stretched out well. <laughs> And anyone here today is also missing the Super Bowl? I don't know what time it starts. Uh, not Four. for a couple of hours. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. We're okay. okay. It's two hours about. Okay. Uh, that should We should have enough time for that. Okay. And we're all rooting for the Bengals because of the young man from Casper and University of Wyoming, Logan Wilson, left tackle for the Bengals, right? I was just rooting for Ohio over California. That's okay, all. you're rooting for the Bengals. Okay. AFC, AFC over NFC. That's... <laughs> And what? I have to admit, until somebody mentioned it, I didn't know it was Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not rooting for anyone. Okay. We don't even like the halftime show. Or, uh, or as we were talking earlier, the the meme that's going around that you know who are people rooting for, um, the Canada truckers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll do that. Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we doing that? Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm not because I don't have a truck, but my son does, and he's thinking about getting involved. Um, but you know. It should be a lot of money out of pocket, and they are heavy yeah. haul guys. So yeah. yeah, well, if that happens, though, we need to be helping them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah I know I, some I, people I, are going to be watching. Simply, they they say they're going to be sitting there for four hours to watch the commercials, and all I could think is that's why God gave us YouTube. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. You don't have to wait a whole year for this. Yeah. But I think you know that used to be kind of true. Is that the commercials were the best part of the Super Bowl? But I that hasn't for me that hasn't been true for a, a several years. They're just not that good anymore. I haven't watched the Super Bowl in ten, fifteen years. We don't even have a TV. I don't even have a TV. That's weird. Got a TV? Oh, we have several, but oh, we don't oh, have okay. we don't have like satellite or cable or anything. It's just streaming services for the kids. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, yeah, we have a screen where we can do that sort of thing. Yeah, everybody has a screen. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. But you know, again, even if you had satellite, it'd be five hundred five hundred channels of nothing really good. Was it Emo Phillips <laughs> right. that said he liked to sit and watch the tube carry nutrients to his arm? Yes, that <laughs> <it> was. <laughs> what are we talking about, Diane? Well, uh, something that I talk about a lot, even if nobody's listening, is education. Trust me, that's true. <laughs> How do you know you're not listening? <laughs> huh? And what about education? Have you had you going on today, Diane? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for throwing that to me, Garrett. Hey, you're, you're welcome. You're a, you're a good pal. Um, last time we were talking about Tom Kelly here getting, he was going to run for state superintendent of schools. And so we are talked you still planning? Oh, yeah, yes. Yes, I am okay. <laughs> yeah. going to, it yeah. was yeah. going to, it, well, it is. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? Yeah. I mean, we, we was talking about it. <laughs> okay. We'll work on grammar okay. and the topic today. Very good. Well, I said we wanted to talk about education. So what I had been thinking about was just some of the things that we're hearing now with, um, we have our the, the what do you call it interim superintendent who who just was appointed to take over the spot until the elections i'm trying to figure out how to introduce this without picking on anybody specifically i just cut them <laughs> they're not here to defend themselves well, there's been some discussion of reeling back the educational curriculum to a more classical or traditional curriculum correct uh, a little bit, and I, you know, I'm wondering. Well, what do you mean by that? I have always said we need to teach fewer subjects better, because if our kids can't read, then a lot of these other things don't matter. And I think if you teach a kid how to read well, he can learn almost anything he wants to by himself. That requires comprehension too. Right. Yeah. But that's what I mean by teaching a child to read, okay. not just being able to say the words. That's not reading. Okay. Good. Yeah. So. Anyway, as far as uh, comments that I've heard about, like, trying to start teaching classically, we really have to define what we mean like that, about that. Because I think that one of the people that I heard saying it meant, let's go back to the three R's. That's not a bad idea. But that's not what classical education is. So before we can do something like that with the entire state system, we have to know what we're talking about. Do you want me to tell you what I'm talking about, or do you have some comments? Please. <laughs> 
Can we go back expand to football? That, <laughs> expand on the idea of a classical education. Well, uh, I started hearing about classical education when I was homeschooling my kids back in the early 90s. And it was kind of, classical education is old, but it's being reintroduced into education. And it started with homeschoolers. And uh, private school, I think the, the Douglas Wilson, who started bringing it back in, actually maybe homeschooled and then had a private school. But he's the one who started talking about it. And he, and he presented it as a three-stage kind of thing where you start out with the trivium stage, which is teaching little kids a lot of stuff because little kids absorb stuff pretty easily. And so one thing that we did, um, and a lot of the schools that we associate with, teach a lot of things with, with poems and rhymes and songs because everybody learns well that way. I used to come home from work when I first started there going over and over the song about where the order of the planets and it would be in my mind when I woke up because I would get stuck in the middle and couldn't get past Saturn or something and so it was just playing back and forth <laughs> over and over again. And I went back and said, I have to hear that song again or I'm going to go crazy. Did they take Pluto out of the song? Uh, at the time, Pluto was still in the song. Okay. Yeah. And he's probably, I don't think they made up their mind that they took him out and then they put him back. So that's confusing. But anyway, then when, so you teach, you teach little kids a lot of things when they're absorbent and when they think it's fun. That's part of it too, is that singing a song about the planets is really fun. And I get to go home and tell my mom that I know the planets and she's impressed because she never learned the planets. Um, and then they move to the logic stage at where, whenever they're ready. It's not like there's a date when kids cross the line. But as Garrett and I were talking about earlier, like with teaching science, when, when I was teaching at the classical school, we were trying to teach science in, in the really lower grades because it looks good and parents expect it. But it was a lot of beating my head against a wall, I felt like most of the time, because you little kids love taking time out of a regular class period to do experiments because it's messy and noisy and you're not actually having to do anything else. They like making volcanoes out of vinegar and baking soda over and over and over again. Um, and you can teach them some things about animals and you can grow a bean plant and things like that. But until a certain point when they're able to understand um, concepts that aren't concrete, you're really just kind of wasting your time other than like the periodic table song and things like that. Um, but you're not really teaching science until they get to a certain age. And that, that would be the logic stage. And then as they get older, those things, of course, accumulate. You don't just stop and don't teach that anymore. But they call it the rhetoric stage, which is where students learn how to express what they've learned well in writing and in speaking. Um, and it, it involves other things, too. But, but it also almost always includes Latin for the because our language comes from there, because learning Latin teaches you how to think logically unless you start when you're 45 and then it just hurts your head but um unless you're catholic and you've <laughs> been indoctrinated since day one right which i yeah. wasn't yeah that's the so, same principle she was talking about right, basically yeah. right yeah you absorbed it in, yeah. your, in your childhood yeah um so that's what people from classical schools are talking about the ones i know anyway <clears throat> when they say classical education they're not talking about let's just go back to the three r's that's a really good idea, going back and just teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, and get those down. Because apparently, we're not very good at that. So let's just do that. And then we could move on to other things. Well, I, I agree with what you say, Diane. Um, I mean, I was very active in my children's uh, education. Like I told you, I taught them how to bake and do things like that from the mathematical perspective, a little bit of chemistry involved, a little bit of biology when you make bread. Uh, I also did things like my kids went to Bighorn, so I'd walk up and drop them off and walk up and pick them up. Oh, and, Dad, how embarrassing. And, and, talk to the, and talk to the teachers because I knew them. You know, I mean, Tina Martolio had been there since my senior year, She and she had my younger brother and had, all, had two of my three kids. And, of course, then people like uh, Richard Mock would pop in as as – as a um, substitute teacher and um, there, there was a couple that were still hanging over from the time that Ken and I were at Bighorn but it was one of the things they were that, hung over anyway you know, yeah one of the things that I really sort of came to realize was probably with our departure in the 70s and the, and the departure of those teachers uh, those teachers had you know degrees in math as in Chuck Wells 
and literature, as in, you know, Rick Sherry, and on down the line. They had degrees in those, and some of them got their masters in, in, those, in those topics. What I came to realize was when my son, who, you know, is now 31, so when he was at Bighorn, I think he graduated in 06, those teachers had degrees in education and were handed a book to teach math. Mm, yep. You know, or or, or actually, actually just verbally vomited out page per page. And I found this out because he was taking algebra and uh, the teacher was grading him wrong when his answers were right because he didn't show his, he didn't, because in showing his work, it wasn't in the book because she didn't know math. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go round and round with her and eventually had to go to the, to the principal at the time. And he agreed with me, you know, because with any math problem, especially an algebra problem, there's at least two ways, if not three or four ways to solve it. It's not about doing it the way the book wants you to do it. It's about doing the operations in the right order. And I don't know how many parents I've heard say the same thing. Yeah. So you actually have to have teachers that have degrees in those areas, whether it's English or math or science or literature. I would disagree with the degree thing. Yeah, this is... We could always sit here and lament about how education isn't what it used to be. There's no way anyone's rolling back the clock to these days where we have actual mathematicians teaching math. I mean, I opened up here the Harvard Education Program, and their focus is on teaching diverse students uh, in the ways of equity and inclusion. That's what so-called education is now, indoctrination into neo-Marxism, basically, the whole idea of equity. They don't even say equality anymore because they've given a new meaning to the word equity. So we're looking more locally in Wyoming. Yes. Where, and let's call, you know, call it what it is. This is a form of critical race theory where we talk about the privileged structure of white people in America, and that's what they're talking about when they say diversity, inclusion, and equity. They're talking about dismantling the system of white supremacy. And this is how deeply ingrained it is. I was taught this at, the, at Roosevelt University in Chicago, in the mid-1990s. So those are the teachers back in the 90s were being brought up in critical race theory about social transformation of society through the public schools. It had nothing to do with learning how to do math, nothing to do with learning how to write. It's gotten so bad, like you said, about teachers who can't do math. Now they're teaching in math curriculum. Getting the right answer is white supremacy. Don't even worry about getting the right answer. Your teacher can't get it. Besides, it's racist to get the right answer anyway. That's what we're facing in Wyoming now. This is already reality in Illinois. It's already reality in California. It's already happening in Colorado. I don't want that happening here. Right, and I loved your point last time we were talking about this as far as critical race theory because you said teachers, they might not, you didn't, this is not your words, they might not have a critical race theory textbook in front of them, but they're teaching through the paradigm of that. And so we've got a bill coming up this in the session next in the next several weeks that's about outlawing the teaching of critical race theory in schools. Thank you, Chuck. Yes, but you you really can't because you can say you may not have a critical race theory textbook if there is such a thing, but you can't. Every teacher teaches through some paradigm. That, that, that's exactly correct. And it's very easy for the school districts to say it's a myth that we're teaching critical race theory because mm-hmm. they could be very literal. We're not handing out any worksheets or going to any websites that say this is what critical race theory is. Mm-hmm. They are teaching through that mindset and paradigm that the United States is a systematically racist system. And the only way to fix it is basically to undo that constitution, which was written by white men. Therefore, the United States is hopelessly sexist and racist, and we have to undo the Constitution. People have to relearn what it means to be an American. It's about chipping away at the foundation of American society. And when we have, if we say we're going to ban critical race theory, the first thing I hear is censorship. And anybody who's got an IQ that's more than double digits can find a way around censorship anyway. So if we have an entire generation of educators who were trained that critical race theory, even if it wasn't called that, whether diversity, equity, and inclusion, whatever they want to call it now, whatever the offshoots are, they don't ever have to mention the words critical race theory. They right. don't ever have to say white privilege. They don't ever even have to say systematic racism. They could still just be teaching 
around the edges, leading the kids to that point that the United States is a bad place and needs to be changed fundamentally. That's what fear, so many people are worried about in Wyoming right now. That's why I'm running. I know the language. I know how they circumvent. I know how they pump that into kids. And unfortunately, I know how many teachers actually believe what they're teaching is, is reality, that America is fundamentally a racist country, which, which is absolutely, it's ludicrous to say that. I mean, it is written into the Constitution. We have amendments. We have federal laws that specifically ban treating people differently based on the color of their skin. And then what do we do at CRT? You're an oppressor because of your skin. You're a victim because of your skin. What was, Everything's your skin. What was the university that I read about, I think it was last night, that was banning white people from attending a particular function? Isn't that great? We have, yeah. in the name of racial equity, we've gone back to segregation. Exactly. Yeah, they've done that at a couple different universities, but I want to sort of wind back what Thomas said a little bit because my understanding about critical race theory in my reading is it's just a re you know jiggering of Karl Marx theory, the oppressor versus the oppressed. Well, you're right. Okay, so it's critical race theory is an offshoot of critical theory, which is from Marxism. So right. when I say it's neo-Marxist and some people say, well, you know, you're, you're just being reactionary or you're being over the top. No, I, I'm, this is literal and factual. It is a neo-Marxist theory. And from that, we get identity politics, too. Right. That's an offshoot and, also. Identity politics is also a form of neo-Marxism that we yeah. fit into different groups. We have no individual thought. Everything is our environment. And Tom, what kind of governments do we get from Marxism and neo-Marxism? Nightmares. Very well armed. <laughs> Venezuela, <laughs> North Korea, Australia, Nazi Germany, China. Uh, yeah, China. Mao, Mao, and, and the Red Guard. And here's the thing: when we we bring up the, the these genocidal countries, everybody just says you are just off your rocker to think that could ever happen here. <laughs> As if these were free societies that woke up one day and there were dictators slaughtering people. These things happen over like generations. It's a sliding, it, it, it's a sliding uh, sl slippery slope. And we're seeing it now in formerly free countries like the UK and Australia, where they are the majority of the population is okay with putting people in the camps who refuse their vaccines. Well, there was a poll done by the Democrats here in the U.S. who said that they'd be were they'd be the Democrats would be willing to see people forcibly vaccinated put in camps, see restrictions on their lives, and have their children taken away. I saw that. You know, it's like 46% of, of registered Democrats are okay with that. And this is an offshoot of the public education system that we worship the almighty state and that the individual is not important. Yeah, we're back to Orwell, 1984. Which I, I believe that was supposed to be, as oh. people have said, it was supposed to be a warning, not an instruction manual. Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, Anne Rand, too, you know, and, of course, Animal House. And yeah. this is all literature that... And the original Star Trek series. The original Star Trek series, yeah. <laughs> as much as Animal I loved Farm. it, it was... Animal Farm. Okay, you said Animal House, which I'm is sorry. a oh. lot more fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. It was a lot more fun. <laughs> Toga, Toga. <laughs> and actually, they were the oppressed fighting against the oppressor, yeah. right? You know? Yeah. Oh, Nothing that's, that's is over right. till we say it is. Yeah. I never thought to look at it like that. Yeah, and they're very American, you know, at, at the very end in the, in, the, in the court case. Or not the very end. I'm not going to stand for this. I'm an American. We're all going to go, you know. So, but but you know your, your example of a tyrannical government we see now. If if the revolution is being televised, we're seeing it in Canada and Justin Trudeau coming out and threatening his own citizens. And this is the language of a dictator. Yeah, these people have unacceptable views. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. A leader of a, a so-called free country is is claiming that people have unacceptable views. And 2.5 million people in Ottawa. Ottawa alone is a fringe minority in a country of 30 million i was trying to explain this to other people this is like 20 million people washing uh, marching on washington yeah yeah well but it's not only in ottawa it's now at the windsor bridge which is the is the busiest crossing point coots which is the one uh north of great falls uh and then another crossing is being shut down you know, by, by Americans and canadians and it's happening in other countries now new yeah. zealand and france and europe you've got people well, cheering on the tyrants get these people in line get them their shots make them wear their masks i i when people say they don't know what happened i'm trying to tell people this is what happened these these were the teachings that educators were being taught throughout the world in the so-called free world that instead of teaching people how to actually think critically they were thinking to think through this paradigm of critical race theory and equity and and European oppressors and the, the world systems theory that communism will work this time if it's the whole planet. 
well, I just view it as um, using the German Nazi model to to get to what they want to. I mean, they made the Jews, you know, non-human. They made them dirty. They made them, you know, if you were if you interacted with them, you'd get some sort of disease. And then, of course, you've got the concept of the super Aryan race. And we're sort of to that model now almost. If you take all your shots and your boosters and wear your mask and do these things, you are a very good citizen and you'll have these rights. I like typically to take Nazi Germany out of any of these discussions because a lot of people close off like as if somehow Adolf Hitler was not a human being. He was some demon straight from hell and that type of thing can never happen anywhere else. I notice people tend to shut off when you compare anything to Nazi Germany. But you are right that this is the typical propaganda of any authoritarian state. The us versus them, the dehumanization of people who don't think the right way, and methodically and incrementally stripping away rights and building public opinion, getting the majority of people to point at those people and say it's their fault. I, I use Nazi Germany as a shock value. And people say Nazism is a right is a right wing uh, governmental form, and I go, no, it's a socialist form. And Hitler was a self was a self proclaimed democratic socialist. Well, yeah, they were the National Socialist Party, right? Exactly. But that uh, sometimes I get in the feeling when I'm talking to somebody about like preserving a democratic state, and then I get somebody, well, actually, America's not actually a democracy. It's like, yes, yes, I know it's a constitutional republic. But as soon as we go out in the weeds about semantics, you start losing people. I want people to stay focused on the whole idea that liberty and individual freedom is fundamental fundamental. And that was the whole idea of the Constitution was that we were going to put the Constitution and the Bill of Rights was a, a set of restraints on the federal government. But and, in, and somehow it's become used, turned on its head, kind of like the War Powers Resolution was supposed to keep presidents from sending uh, troops all over the world, and it's never been used to strain, uh, restrain presidents. They just send troops willy-nilly everywhere now. Another theme that is woven through all of this is that liberty requires responsibility. Responsibility requires basic education, basic yep. knowledge, a basic understanding of the context of, of the concepts that go into these. And, and they used to call it a liberal education because liberal means free. So we're going to teach you how to think like a free person, not like a slave. But you can't, they've taken that word from us and we can't use it anymore. So we have to use something else. <laughs> I, I really wish people would use the word that's actually out there. It's, it's not liberal. It's not progressive. We have people who they are socialists. And some of them don't even shy from that word anymore. Why is that a bad word? Right. Well, I'd go further. i say they're communists. There's no such thing as socialists. They all end up being communists. It's like communism light. Yeah. It's like being Episcopalian when you're Catholic. You know? <laughs> there we just lost another 30 people. <laughs> I guess I want to get edited out, huh? <laughs> so, yeah, let's take out the religious jokes. Tom. Yeah. If you were uh, superintendent of public instruction in Wyoming, what could we do about that? Is there anything we can do? What could we do about Tom being superintendent? (laughs) (laughs) We just wait around for four years. (laughs) The the most important thing I would think for the superintendent of of public instruction would be to be somebody who leads by example. And, And that would be that my job would not be to micromanage and dictate to all the local districts and all the parents what they would want to to do in their local communities. It would be about finding ways to more responsibly use the finances. The fact of the matter is that Wyoming schools are swimming in cash compared to other states, and yet somehow don't perform as well all the time. And we see where it goes. It's top heavy, it goes to administration. A lot of money gets spent in places other than with with the kids. Um, But I also understand though, that the state gives block grants two different districts and and then they have a lot of freedom to do what they want to do with it and quite often the administration who gets that uh then then votes themselves big raises and new offices and then of course the kids are at the end of the list i have to actually take a closer look at what's going on in that office right now which is what i'm in the process of doing um it's probably been a blessing from god that that Governor Gordon did not appoint me because I would have hit the ground running and been learning about exactly how this job functions while I was trying to do it. So now while I'm campaigning for it, I'm getting a much better idea of the responsibilities of it, the influence we could have on it. 
Uh, and, but there, there would also have to be the, the, the fundamental basics of somehow influencing districts to stop teaching kids that they're the wrong skin color or the right skin color or you can't make it anywhere in life because that has made its way into schools in Wyoming, whether p- people want to believe that or not. Well, there's there's the problem with biracial couples in which, you know, one's white, the other one's black or something else like that. And you have a child that's learning that mommy or daddy is the wrong skin type. And so they're bad. I mean, I wanna, what a horrible concept. I want to throw something else out there because I know it's kind of near and dear to Diane's heart. And I would call it the one room schoolhouse. When I was still in high school, and Garrett and I were in Bighorn together, my stepbrothers lived on the other side of the mountain over in Shell. And they had a little one-room schoolhouse. Right. They both got excellent educations. My adopted ex-stepbrother is a pharmacist today, um, perfectly capable. It just seems to me that there's this movement toward a centralization of power. We do the same thing with schools. Instead of having, Sheridan could have a half dozen high schools yeah. and get them down to manageable and, and one administrator over the entire county perhaps. This, the whole model has just gotten so top heavy. Garrett, you and I went into school in a school building that was 100 years old that generations of people had gone to. Same thing in Grable where I graduated high school. My dad had gone to the same building. And since we left Bighorn, they've built two more schools. Yep. So you talk about the administration and the top heaviness heaviness of that. And we went through a number of years in Wyoming where we had money just running out our ears. And it was nice to have the nice things. Yep. But they're not necessary to a good education, as is evidenced by the results after spending what's now going to be $20,000 per student. Well, and let's let's go back to that uh, Bighorn High School, the old four-story brick building. Yeah, was repurposed from being a teacher's college, college yeah. in Bighorn yeah. for years. But w- what I'm saying is these these smaller facilities, more easily maintained, the local school boards, if you will, would would be much stronger than centralizing everything and uh, yeah ken i know what you're saying decentralization of power the, the more whether we see it at the federal level or the state level the more we centralize power see, that's why you have a phd because you can be more succinct and i could also babble on longer too <laughs> but w- one of the things like it's say okay so i'm running for superintendent and, and i plan on winning um i would encourage anyone listening to this to find people who are interested in this issue to run for your local school boards because I will need assistance from local school boards. You will be the ones at the the local level looking at school budgets and and not making sure that the children have whatever they need in the classroom, making sure that instructors are getting paid a, a fair salary so they can live in the cities in which they teach. And your district is not hiring uh, another assistant superintendent of excellence who gets $150,000 a year and, and two administrative assistants and never sees a kid in the classroom. And benefits. Right, and, and that's one of the things I think is really big on everybody's mind is how much money we're st- spending on students. And it seems to me that a lot of times that's, that's all the boards do is try to figure out how to get more. I saw that when I attended um, a couple Buffalo school board meetings is it was it, the discussion was around what grants are we working on and where what in what process are they or what reports do we need to file and i just found that really ineffective and when they asked for the reports from the from the principals i was stunned about how simplistic it was it was like oh the girls volleyball team won state oh we did this and they show this little video about these kids doing art and i'm going that as if I was a parent with children in the Buffalo School District, I would have had a fit. I would have had a meltdown. I was mad enough the way I was just living in Buffalo. But you know, I agree with Tom. There's a there's a massive over, overhead structure that can, in my view, can probably be trimmed by fifty percent. Yeah, there are two points you had made, Diane, about one point to make about how much is spent per student. We also often look at that. People need to realize that some of the school districts that spend the most per student are. Washington, D.C., Chicago, 
how much you spend per student is not indicative of how much money is actually spent on a student. What they do is they take no. the entire budget and they divvy, they divide it by how many students there are. And they say, look, this is how much we spend per student. And what does half of it actually get to the kids and the teachers and the rest is eaten up in administration? Is it that much? I, I, don't, I, I haven't looked that closely at the Wyoming budget. That's some of the stuff I'll be looking at so I, I know with laser-like focus what I can do and what I'll be talking about as we talk about later in the spring and the summer about what I plan on doing. Well, I know that there are probably not very many people in in the school system who want to hear this, but... First of all, as a homeschooler, I had three kids, and we homeschooled for eight years. I never spent, probably never spent a thousand dollars on homeschooling that whole time. We used the library. We homeschoolers are really good about sharing stuff. Uh, we we shared books, um, and I, that sounds so medieval now that we didn't even have a computer. But then when I taught at the private school, if we had had if our students were paying $18,000 a year, we would have only needed two to pay for me and and probably my half of the overhead, you know. It was just it was just stunning that the schools were taking that much money and saying per student and and here's here we are going, wow, you know, I, I don't we could do with half, a third, a quarter of that, and it would make all the difference in the world. But it does not cost that much money well, we to see teach this, a kid the basics. Right. We see this all the time with private schools spending less than half of what public schools do and having superior results. Now, the public schools, particularly the teachers' unions, like to kick back, well, they don't have the type of population we do. And, and I've worked at and been in private schools, and yes, they do. Just well, because kids have special needs doesn't mean they automatically go to a public school. And my answer to that as far as, um, yeah, a public school classroom probably has more students at one time than I usually did. I, uh, but it, I've had, the difference would be, at one time, I think probably 15 would, was about as many as I could handle in one classroom because I was teaching second or third through eighth grade. Don't tell me that that's not as difficult, I would say, more but as teaching a classroom of 20 kids that are all the same age. Here's, here's one way to look at it. If you've got a class size of 24 students, and let's just say it's 18000 per student, you've got $432,000. Let's say you have $100,000 to pay that teacher between the, the salary and the other benefits that are thrown in there. What's done with that other three hundred and thirty-two thousand dollars? Yeah, that, exactly. And wh one of the things I don't want to, in this discussion, give anyone the impression that we're talking here about making teachers and kids do more with less. The way the budget is in Wyoming, there's no reason why we can't raise teacher salaries, make sure the kids have more resources, and cut the budget. Exactly. Well, I was just listening to Dave Iverson's second part of his interview with Bo Biteman, and they were talking about the automatic accelerators or in in the in the school district budget budgets and how the school districts the teachers unions say that if you're if they're expecting next year a five percent increase and the legislature goes no you're gonna get two they're going you're There's cutting cut. our budget you're cutting yeah. our budget and that's not the case i mean what you're doing is you're slowing down the budget they're getting two percent and so you're not really cutting the budget but this is you know that that's a national problem too even at the at the dc level i mean how how do you rein that in i mean Bo was sort of throwing up his hands about that and saying that's hard to rein in. If, from, from the state level, absolutely it is. And that's what I was saying about somebody, the governor, the state superintendent, would need assistance from people who knew what they were doing in the local districts who didn't sit there and fill out the reports looking at how many federal grants they can get or how many state grants they can get. One of the issues we run into also is, is federal money. The U.S. Department of Education is infecting even the most conservative states with left-wing ideology by dangling all this money and saying, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, we'll give you all this cash. And then what happens? Um, I, in the interview with Governor Gordon, I looked right at him and told him, I said, you have to break this addiction to federal money. You can't be like, oh, yeah, we're a conservative state. Oh, but look how much money the federal government's going to give us. So we'll just throw all those principles out the window. I didn't say it that ineloquently, but that's what I said. Probably why he didn't pick me. <laughs> I thought it was very eloquent. It's very, to the point, it's very... It's you know it's, it states the problem immediately. Every many federal levels. dollar comes with many strings. Well, yeah. and I think that the only thing we can do about it is what is being done by a lot by us and by David Iverson 
and by some of the newspapers and, and you know people who are trying to get the word out there is that people have to understand that so that the general public, every time they hear about less money in the schools, don't say, you don't care about the kids. That's it. There you go. That's the political aspect yes. of it is the whole idea that if you are not for we we in America now have gotten this horrific, horrific idea that how much we care about something is measured based on how much money we spend on it through taxes and how much of our authority of it we will give up to a centralized and the government. Ribbon. Don't forget the ribbon on your chest. It, yeah, but, but so you look at it that way. It's just if you don't want to give up your liberty to the government, if you don't want to give your money to the government, you don't care about education. You yeah. don't care. You're anti-children. But I look at something like education, it is way too important to leave up to a bunch of government bureaucrats. Now, I understand that I'd be running for a position, an elected official who would have a bunch of government bureaucrats, but that would be one of the first things to look at. My staff, how many of these jobs are not necessary? How much money is the government, quote, spending on education just to have people sending back Excel spreadsheets to one another? Right. What what difference could you make if you got rid of those people and visited towns and school districts to see what was going on yourself. Yeah, imagine that. Uh, well, I, I am, I'm going to be very, very unpopular with the teachers' union. I'll be very, very unpopular with state government workers. I'll be very unpopular with Wyoming media if I do my job correctly. And the WEA will hate you. Oh, I'm sure they already do. Yeah. But the only way to, ta- to change any of this is if that the people are educated enough that when they hear certain buzz phrases, they don't think they mean what we've they've been told they mean. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Keep on using and, the phrase. Yes. Like, like Gert was saying here about the whole idea of you put in to increase a budget by 3 or 4% and the union wanted 8%. They right. go, you're cutting our budget in half. And then what, what right. happens? The Sheridan Press goes out there and says, Superintendent Kelly cuts budget in half. But you know, and, and no one yeah. suffers. I mean, and, and nobody nobody questions it. And, and then they'll take some uh, they'll take three words out of context that I said about something to, to prove that I worship Satan or whatever they're going to do. <laughs> but I, I think you could probably do that, and and the classroom would never know the difference if you cut the budget in half. If we oh, did yeah. things correctly, the classroom would know the difference because we would have higher quality teachers. We, oh, that. we would have teachers who are not working a second job. Yeah. To uh-huh. help to help fund the, the, the materials they need in their own classroom. If we could actually pay teachers what they deserve because we weren't paying for so many unnecessary administrators at the state and local levels. So, Tom, let, let's take Sheridan District here. Since you're in the Sheridan District, how many administrators does District 1 have? My kids are in District 2. Oh, they're in District 2. But so I have looked at... I'm sorry, I, District 2, yeah. I have looked at these things, and I have thought to myself, why does that school need two assistant principals why do we need an assistant principal because what is the principal fire doing? that person that is tenured and and they're well administrators quite often are not part of the union so they actually well, they, they should be easier to get rid of except for the fact they're the ones who make the budgets my my point is that they all want to move up the ladder so you got to have a bigger ladder because you got to keep them around forever so so this so is they don't have to teach so this is typical build your own fiefdom yeah, I'm 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 the principal here, and I'm going to write into the budget for a vice principal, assistant principal, because I need to. I have now created something new for me to do, or something that needs to be done. And then he needs, like someone said, like Diane said, two assistants, and of course, then he needs something else. You we know, have chief of staff. We have three school districts in Sheridan County. Yeah, Natrona has one school district in the entire county, and twice as many people. Yeah. And apparently Claremont might end up going over to Gillette. Well, you know. The, well, the, you, the whole, you, he had mentioned, Garrett mentioned something about bureaucracy, and that's one of the things, it's one of the incentives of a public bureaucracy. Uh, a, a private, a private profit-driven organization, and I'm not saying the state should become private and profit-driven, but the incentives are, instead of to do as much as you can with as few people, mm-hmm. and for as little money, a public system, as you said with that fiefdom, the incentives are to have as many people working for you as possible and as large of a budget. It's almost a bragging right. You go walking around beating your chest saying, do you know how big the budget is? I and How many people work for me? And, and who cares about what happens to the taxpayers getting squeezed out of their homes as, as Biden inflates the economy? Or even worse, the students are graduating stupid. 
That's worse than people get inflated out of their house because now we have a generation of stupid people, you know. Um, but, I mean, I saw the same thing when I worked for Big Pharma, you know, and if I mentioned the name of that company, everyone would know it. I saw the same thing. This is how you build your group. You know, you, you start a group and you have X amount to work with, and the next budget you go, oh, well, I want to do this now, and I need to add these number of scientists and a staff manager, and I need to add all this. And so, uh, suddenly, after five years, you've got a project that started at $3 million and had, you had three or four scientists, and all of a sudden you're at $15, 20000000 million, and you're sort of doing the same thing at the same speed. And you, if your project was to solve a problem, and you actually solved that problem, God forbid, now you've just worked yourself out of a job. Well, so we don't want to solve the problem. We right. want to perpetuate right, it. Right, right. And, and that fits perfectly into the discussion about, about education because I think that's part of it too, is that I've, I don't know how many kids I've taught how to read. It is not that hard. No. I taught my own before they went to school, thank goodness. I taught kids at the school. I've taught kids since then. If you, if you wait till they're ready, which you're not allowed to do because this, that looks bad, and, and then just teach them phonics, ta-da, they've got it. But we don't actually want kids to learn how to read because we want money for programs to teach kids how to read, and we want experts, and we want uh, we want to have to go to conferences and, and all these things because our children are not reading. We need more control. We need your children younger. If we had them at three, we could have them reading by the time they're six. What if they don't want to read by the time they're six? What if they only didn't read till they were seven? Oh, my goodness. But it, it's the same thing. If we actually solved that problem and all of our students could read by the time they were in the fourth grade somebody's losing money yeah right and, and then those are the that's the that's the federal addiction uh, to, that's a federal money addiction one of the things i would like to get on the table too uh, is we're talking about since i am running for this office i know some of the attacks for me would be like i don't understand what it's like to have kids or special needs kids so I'm going to briefly mention some things about my five children who are currently in the public school system. I have a teenage son who's on the autistic spectrum, mm. like me, which people haven't figured that out. So, but you can't see that on a podcast that I have trouble making eye contact. Um, I have a daughter who's a teenager who suffers from PTSD from surviving leukemia treatment which fantastic that she did, but cancer treatment is still a nightmare even when it works. I have another teenage daughter who has severe ADHD. She has the attention span of a firefly, the sweetest girl in the world, but it is very tough to keep her focus on anything. I have a son who's a little younger who is gifted and talented. He's got an IQ so high that he's looked at me, who's been measured you know, in the 99.9 .9 percentile, and he's looked at me at the age of five and said, Dad, I don't think you're very bright. So he's a literal genius. And then my youngest son has Down syndrome. So my, my house is a traveling special education class, and I'm a former special education teacher. So I understand exactly what kids with special needs actually need in the classroom. And what they don't need is more federal paperwork and more supervisors supervising the supervisors. Yeah, that sounds very Dr. Susian. Yeah. You know the bee watcher. Bee watcher. Oh, wait, no, no, no. He was he was a white supremacist. Oh, that's he right. Forgot I forgot his white. Oh. Yeah, red fish, blue fish, we'll green dog, to, red dog. We'll have to delete that part. Uh, um, he probably actually was, but yeah. it only comes out in a couple of his books. That's the funny thing about it was Dr. Seuss was known as like a hardcore liberal during his day, and and yeah. like we just we paste today's so-called values on the past and and say, oh my God, he was a screaming racist. It's like, well, yeah, so but, is Abraham Lincoln by today's standards. But part yeah. of that is that he could write books for children and we didn't have to know his personal life. He could keep that out and we can't, we don't do that anymore. Uh, as somebody, a friend was Ooh, telling that's me. That's a whole different show. But I yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> but a friend was telling me just a couple of days ago about a book she found in the library that was um, really, really cute. It's in the picture book section, so it's for very young children. They're going to take this to mommy and go, this is the book I want to take home this week. And it's about a bat, I think, who wants to be a butterfly. I haven't seen the book yet. She's going to bring it to me. A bat who wish wants to be a butterfly. And I don't know if they make that happen or what, but that the, she says it ends up with, well, now I my mom loves me anyway, even though I changed from what I was to what I wanted to be. Ah. There's a lot Can't of Can't we just teach right kids to read? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I I just was trying to remember how much to give the goldfish so that something bad wouldn't happen. So much and no more. Yeah. Never more than a spot. 
I, I, I don't know. I find it interesting, Tom, because the way they dealt with ADHD, because I'm ADHD, and I've learned how to leverage it to help me. So I'll work on projects like for 20 minutes and change uh, and, and, and work at, a, at, at odd hours and do odd things to make, my, make that all work out. But the way they dealt with it with me at that time, you know, back in the 60s and 70s was I got extra work. I mean, I'd finish whatever was in front of me and I got extra work, you know, and, and that was fine. I was OK with that. You know, I was still in the classroom. You know, Elizabeth Shelton, our science mm -hmm. teacher out Bighorn, always handed me extra work. Brian Anderson, who was the advanced reading instructor uh, up at Highland Park, the old Highland Park. I bumped into him when I came back and he says, Garrett, you realize that you read so fast and you're reading four grades above everybody else that I had to give you extra work. And I went, I always wondered why the books I had never really pertained to the questions you asked everybody else. Do you remember SRA? SRA, yeah. Yeah. You used, yeah. used to read all the way through that thing within the first couple of weeks, and then the teacher had to go digging through the warehouse to find another edition. Yeah. So that I'd have something oh, to do. Oh man, they I never, never told had me. time to finish it. They never I told me I had ADHD, it. but they did the same thing. Well, Garrett reminded <laughs> me of what happened to me in, in grade school. I was put in some so-called gifted and talented program uh, for, for high IQ children, and all the kids looked at me. You know, the kid in the dirty T-shirt. They're like, "Really, him?" You know, because I, I didn't look like you're. We were all called nerds, but um, I ended up pulling myself out of that. And I went to the principal. I said, why am I getting punished with extra work? Because I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. smart. <laughs> but in some ways, that's preferable to what happened like with, with our son when they were in high school is that the, the thing now is that you have your, um, what, what do you call it? I don't know the right words anymore, but they're para. So if they were special needs, they were mainstreaming them because all the kids deserve all the same thing. So... All the people with special needs have to be in the classroom. Since they can't function there, we hire somebody to sit by them and do their work for them. And then you teach to the lowest common denominator. Right. So that's where I was getting is yeah. that my son is has a very high IQ. And so he sat around going, what about me? Yeah. You sit down and shut up because you don't need the extra help. I could use something to do. Uh, but there was no time for him. I've worked as both a, a special ed para and a special education teacher, and I can tell you one of the reasons we need teaching assistants or, or paraprofessionals is that the teachers are so up to their ears in meetings and filling out forms and government reports and holding conferences that you have to hire somebody else to actually teach the kids. When I was a para, I was the actual teacher. Mm. While the special education teacher was in the back filling out forms, I was the one actually working with the kids all the time. You see that quite often. I know what you mean. You have the one-to-one -one aides that um, I, I've seen it happen. I, I saw this. This is no joke. This happened in Illinois, and I, it, it was really sad because there was a, a, a girl who was basically comatose on, on, a, on a ventilator, mm. and they wheeled her into a French class. That was inclusion in Illinois. I mean, it, they had just lost their minds. They'd gone, the pendulum had gone so far the wrong direction that you had somebody who was literally not awake being rolled into a, a foreign language class. And I'm not complaining about the kids who need help. What I'm complaining about is why do we have to always go to, from one extreme to the other? Why can't you... Why is it so important now to include... I don't know what word to use but the kids who need the help and then the ones who don't that you could actually actually accomplish something with. You're just leaving them sitting in a corner. Why not? Why not? Well, and which is what I always did in my classes where I was teaching second through eighth grade, you teach to the top and, and work your way down. The little kids are learning or they're doing something to keep them busy. One of the middle classes is helping the little kids stay busy. And then the older kids go do their work and you teach down to the next one. I used to stand up at the board and teach six separate spelling lessons in an hour and a half by what I just said. Okay, we'll start with the older kids because they, I'll do theirs. The little kids are learning something. The older kids sit down and do their work and I work my way down. That's how you get everybody in there, not by sticking some of them somewhere else. Right, yeah. And as a former uh, middle school teacher, when I was a social studies teacher, when I was teaching American government and American history, how I ended up careening into being a special education teacher, even though I had no certification in special education, I was recognized as like the best special education teacher in the school. And they would send like 
the actual special education teachers to watch my class on how to work with kids with special needs. And then my classes started to get loaded up with all the kids for that type of thing. And I don't know if you could be allowed to do something like this right now, but I used to have some really, really bright students. And I would pull them aside and say, I need your help. You know this stuff really well. I'm going to be working on this. I'm going to be working on that. You already got this down. Can you, know, can you go help him with this and help him understand that? And the kids were so great with helping one another. The classrooms worked so well. Um, I don't know if that's going on so much in the schools right now, but I can say I'm really happy what they do in, in District 2 with my son, Kane. That's the one who has Down syndrome. They're realistic. They pull him out for part of the day, and they teach him his letters, and they teach him how to read, and they teach him how to do things that he probably would have learned years ago if he didn't have Down syndrome. But there are times where he's included when it's like PE class or where they're doing some art project or something like that. They just don't bring him in when they're doing stuff like, you know, and they, they start on their pre-algebra and things like that. There's no point in bringing him in when he's still learning how to count to 10. I want to tie a couple loose ends together. This idea of the older kids helping the younger kids the way to really learn something is to be put in a position where you have to teach it. Well, yeah. Well, these kids were the same age, but I know what you mean. Yeah, and that is a tremendous benefit for those, and that's how the one-room schoolhouses used to work. The yeah. older kids were responsible in part for the education of the younger ones, and in so doing, they became more proficient at what they were doing because they had to not only understand it, but they had to understand how to articulate it. Well, and that's basically how graduate school works. I mean, I had to teach yep. basic biology. I had to teach basic genetics. I had to teach physiology. And then in, once you get in the lab, you're learning from an older student how to do specific protocols, procedures, and use specific specific types of instruments. And so that's that happens. Well, when I was in graduate school, I don't know anymore if, it, if that's the way it happens, but that's the way it happened at the time. And I'm glad you made that point because I was thinking about Becton School. I mean, Becton School closed down. In the 90s, yeah. there was the one out on Lower Prairie Dog. You know, all, a lot of the, there's a lot of sing, small single-room schoolhouses around Wyoming. And there's one on the other side of the mountain that has like 11 students. They saved a lot of money on buses that way. Yeah, they did. They did. You know, kids could ride their horses to school still. Yeah. You know, so. And I, and I think, I think. Hey, it's, don't laugh, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> We've thinking, all been there. As superintendent, I'm going to make sure everybody has a horse to get to school. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think. Oh, it's, right, wait, wait, I could see, like, you're going to see something like Wildfile is going to, like, put that out. There's a quote now, like, I actually yeah. meant that. <laughs> well, I don't know. When, when we were going to Bighorn, you know, someone would always drive a tractor to school in the spring yeah. because they had to move it over to the other piece well, of property. They like lost a, their driver's license to a DUI. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. At well, 12. One other thing that I would had been thinking, and, and then you sort of brought it up, where you ended up a special ed teacher because you were doing it. You didn't have a degree. And I think that that's one of the things that we need to get away from. And I, I think that it's the teacher like the WEA, they're protecting themselves. They're saying, we're the experts and no one else can do this unless they go through our school. But what about using people's expertise instead of their degrees? Because oh, yeah. just because you got through teacher school doesn't mean you can, could balance a class. I, I agree with levels. that completely. First of all, I, 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 did, I have a master's degree in education. Um, I don't talk about that. We talk about my PhD typically, but I have an MA in education. And so I was certified to teach. I just didn't have like the extra. It wasn't specialized in special education. Right. Yes, I understood and, that. But, and I know, I know what you mean by uh, bringing in people who actually know the subject. That's something the state legislature can do to, to, to loosen up these um, requirements and, and allow more provisional certifications for subject uh, matter experts, to, particularly to teach in like the high schools and, and the middle schools and the junior highs to allow people who come in when you need somebody to teach something like French or Spanish, to have somebody who's really good at teaching it. And it's, oh, well, you can't have, you're right, you can't have the union coming and saying, well, you don't have a four-year degree in this. Right. And, and one quick story. With a PhD in political science, and as the, a, a university department head of political science, my Colorado teaching certificate expired and they would not renew it they said I was no longer qualified to teach middle school and high school kids American government because I didn't participate in my union-required training. That's the power of the unions. It has to be broken. Yeah. Well, and I'm not whining about what happened to me because I didn't jump through the hoops, but I taught for 10 years at a private school. I didn't have to have any kind of degree, which I don't. I don't have a degree. So all I have is experience. 
and I know how to teach kids how to read. And so uh, when COVID hit and the, and the different um, remote schools were trying to function, Ken knew somebody who was trying to hire people to help them with their school. And when I talked to her, she talked to me for a little while and she said something about my degree and I said, I don't have one. And she said, oh, sorry. Well, don't feel bad because my PhD in genetics, I can't teach biology or genetics <laughs> or anything I, in, in I, Wyoming at all. I don't feel bad for me. I feel bad because we're not using resources. No, right. I, I agree. And, I, they, and they say you're not qualified to teach because you didn't have your formal degree in education. And right. what are they teaching? It's absolute garbage anyway. They're not teaching right. people how to educate. They're teaching stuff like this is how you're going to go and make kids feel bad about the color of their skin. That's right. what's happening right. in education schools now. Because they're not learning how to teach kids to read. That's my thing. But I think that it's the most basic thing. We have kids coming out of Wyoming schools who can't read. That's dumb. Yeah. Because it's so easy. But nobody's ever going to let me teach a kid how to read in public school because I don't have any paperwork. We had a experience in Thermop. I'm a cabinet maker by trade. And the local shop teacher found out about that. And so he would have me come in and... He would still be there, of course, to shelter me from the school district. And I taught several classes for him. The music teacher, same thing. He brought me in and I led the choir, taught them some things that he was a great music teacher. He was a band teacher. He didn't know a thing about vocal, vocal choir, those sort of things. Well, I've been doing that all my life. We need to take advantage of the expertise around us to bring in people who actually have done these things. There's that old adage, those that do, do, those that don't or teach. can't teach. And those who can't teach, teach gym class, right? Yeah. <laughs> I say go into business. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to politics. Yeah. Going to politics. But yeah. there are so many ways that we could be more effective in educating our children by using people with talents and abilities and proven skills instead of just going through the WEA now that uh, yeah yeah but Ken now you're making sense and you uh, know how that's going to get spun and like it, it, on public racist. radio and in the Casper uh, Tribune they'll be telling you things such as you know oh, do you, can you can you believe that candidate for superintendent wants unlicensed people in the classroom <gasps> and that's how it'll be spun right oh, oh, they yeah, aren't that's how be inexperienced spun. and unlicensed boobs coming in the classroom to what was they did one goof right about something about teaching snake handling or something like yeah, that I mean yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I got, need, I've got more credentials than that guy inside out. It's just like, boy, you made, made a fool of yourself. By <laughs> need to have him sit down here. There was a oh, picture. yeah, let's invite him in here so I can show him how stupid I am. I would love to do that. There's a picture taken at the Thermopolis Middle School this week that was put up on their Facebook page of, I think it's four students laying in the gym shooting BB guns I at saw Target. That. Yeah, I saw that. And they had to take it down because it was offensive that these students were shooting air rifles. In a, in a state like Wyoming, that ought to be mandatory, is yeah. some sort of well, gun handling class. Let's all remember, Lewis and Clark carried an air rifle with them when they when they did on their voyage of exp exploration. With BBs? Uh, I think it was pellets, but same concept. Yeah, they're, uh, that's not necessarily being the issue. Is <laughs> when, when was a kid shooting Mr. a BB ADHD. gun in Wyoming offensive? It's not offensive. And if you're offended by a kid shooting a BB gun, then you can't watch half of the Christmas movies that I watch. <laughs> when, <laughs> well, I yeah, watch, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. Too. But yeah, yeah. We, we know yeah. what we're thinking there. But it's gotten so bad now. You go to the left-wing districts, and, and they've banned playing dodgeball because it's yes. too much like targeting somebody with a gun it, they're telling kids that playing what? dodgeball yeah. dodgeball encourages school shootings that's that's what the left is saying Ooh, now. I didn't you're know targeting that far. you're I targeting it was nerds so yeah. oh no no it's 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 target it's learning how to target people so then softball and baseball do the same thing well, they're no good anyway because you have winners and lunar losers. And, and concussions. Know. Don't forget the concussions. It, it, what's funny about that is when I lived in California and taught, you know, Little League Baseball. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I had to. Uh, the, the kids knew. I'm in what, California. Yeah, well, that's yeah. See, the kids knew who won and who lost. And I didn't mm -hmm. discourage it. They'd say, oh, yeah, we, we had more people cross the plate. I'd go, yeah, but we don't count it right now because this is about you learning. And they go, well, but we won. But, yeah, go, we know we won. <laughs> we know we won, you know. Yeah. Or we lost. They, they, they know when they lost, too. When I, when I was still at the school, and it was, it was years ago because it was toward the beginning, but um, we were trying to buy playground equipment. 
And we could not find a merry-go-round because they're too dangerous, and we don't do that anymore. Kids fall off and break their arms and stuff. That's part of growing up. Yeah. I know. It was it was hard to find a lot of different kinds of playground equipment because kids should never ever be hurt in any way, mentally or physically. 